Ephesians, but I want to start with this this morning. Easter is three weeks away, and I've been feeling in in my spirit a stir to, to go deeper, to go deeper, especially in regards to prayer. And as we come up on this, uh, this Easter season and as Easter Sunday approaches, you know, we've been talking in Ephesians the fact that we wrestle not just, you know, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the evil and the darkness in this world. There's an instance in scripture where Jesus had sent the disciples out and, uh, and they had an amazing time. They went out and they were praying for people and, and people were getting healed and, and, and stuff was happening that was phenomenal. But they came back and they said, listen, Jesus was incredible, but, but there was this one, one person that we tried to cast a demon out in, and it didn't happen. What was the deal? What, what happened? And, and Jesus addresses the fact that he says that where there's this kind of stronghold that gets established, he says that there has to be a combination of prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting where we align ourselves with the Spirit of God in such a way that there is an empowering to break through the spiritual strongholds that exist in the world around us. We're going to read out of 2 Corinthians this morning and Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that they're spiritual. And that prayer and fasting along with the worship and the word are, are the most powerful weapons that we have at our disposal. And so in, in, in this season, as we move towards Easter and, and most likely even beyond that, what I'm going to ask for us to do as a church is this. I'm going to call us to a fast uh, for the next few weeks. And like I said, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to extend beyond that because I know this, that there are strongholds that exist in this community. There are spiritual holds that the enemy has that we want to see breakthrough come. We want to stand on in, in the gap on behalf of our community. But, but just like it was for the disciples, it's the same for us. There needs to be prayer and fasting that allows us to be in a place of spiritual warfare and strength to help break through those bondages and those barriers. Amen? So here's what I'm asking. Starting this week, uh, after dinner on Tuesday night till dinner on Wednesday night, a period of 24 hours that you would set aside that time as a church family, that we would do this corporately to fast and pray. And the idea is this, is that during those times, especially breakfast on Wednesday and lunch on Wednesday, that rather than eating a meal, that we would take time, set time aside to intentionally get on our knees and pray. You don't have to get on your knees, but, but to, to come before the Lord and pray, and and do warfare, and here's what happens, and, and why I'm asking for a set time during the week, that, that when we know as a church family we're doing this together, there's power in that, there's alignment in, in that, and, and the power of God is released in that place through that fasting, and so that's what I'm asking, I'm asking for a food fast, um, I know that we we come we fast different things fast social media or fast but but what I'm specifically asking is for a food fast that you would fast those meals now if your health requires that you eat something or you need to take medication use wisdom use discretion in that please don't put your health at risk but if you're if you're physically able to would you take the time starting this Tuesday and let's take time to pray and fast together. You can expect uh, an email from me on Tuesday afternoon, and I will give some direction uh, and alignment to, for our prayer so that we can be praying in a, in a, uh, a certain direction together. Um, again, there's, that, there's a power that comes in agreement. Amen? Sound good? All right, let's do this. Let's, let's bring the fight to the enemy. Let's see God do amazing things in our community. Amen? All right, Ephesians chapter 6, we are continuing our series entitled Stand. Stand. We are in Ephesians talking about the armor of God, and the armor of God exists for us to be able to take our stand. Let's read this verse together. The words will be up on the screen. I'm reading out of the NIV. It says, starting in verse 10 uh, of chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Actually, I'm going to stop. I, if you want to read along with me, let's do this together. How about that? All right? But I'll, I'll, I'll coordinate our start time here. 
One, two, three, go. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. We've taken a look at a few of the pieces of armor thus far, and we've talked about the Roman army that existed in that time. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. They would have been familiar with the Roman army because they were everywhere, and they were the most formidable fighting force that existed in that time. They were, uh, they were cutting edge. They had the latest technology, the best equipment. They had standardized their methods, and, and if you lived in the Mediterranean region of the world during that time, you knew, knew exactly what the Roman army was and exactly what a Roman legionary looked like. And so as Paul uses this, this metaphor, this picture of the armor, his readers would have understood exactly what it was that Paul was referencing. And of course, he takes the physical uh, explanation of the armor and then he ties it to a spiritual truth. And, and that kind of that metaphor, that analogy is something that Jesus did. He used pictures, he used things around him to explain the kingdom of God. What happens so often, though, is we read the Bible and we don't fully understand the context. And so we might, might miss some of the nuances of what is being said. I realize very often when I'm preaching a series, I spend so much time in recap that I end up being rushed at the end. And so I'm determining this morning, if, if you want to get some of the backstory, if you've missed uh, the last couple of weeks, you can hear those sermons at thriveglendor.org. Go listen to the intro from last week or the week before. But we're going to dive right in because we're actually going to cover two elements of the armor this morning. We're going to talk about the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Uh, and then next Sunday, we will close with the word, which is the sword. So the helmet of faith. Uh, and the, I mean, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith. Again, Paul's purpose in writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and to the churches in that reg region was uh, one word, unity. He was calling for the unity of the church, unity of the spirit and unity of the body, that they would walk together. And he addresses uh, very clearly through the book of Ephesians, through the letter to the Ephesian church, how we're supposed to live in regards to our relationship with God in our relation, in, in regards to our engagement with the body of Christ, and even addresses how we live in relation to each other. He talks about marriage. He talks about the work environment. He talks about race. He talks about ethnicity, and he talk, he addresses all of these things. And so Ephesians is just this complete thought in regards to how we should live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, with unity being the absolute central component in his, in his letter. And so I'm going to just dive right in. We're just going to jump into the shield of faith, and then we're going to talk about the helmet of salvation. I'm a guy, and so I like guy things. Not all guys are into, like, armor and warfare stuff, but, but I am. Like, Gladiator, I love the movie Gladiator. Uh, I, I love Braveheart. I love those, right, like the, those war movies. Um, I love the camaraderie that exists in it. I love the fact that, the, that, that these people are willing to lay their lives down, to run into battle. And, and quite honestly, I, I don't know about you, but I look at the way that warfare used to be fought, and it's kind of baffled me. Because you just, you just get together, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 guys, and they just run at each other. And, and I mean, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed that you're not going to make it out. Yet they did it. They showed up, right? And of course, it's in Braveheart where William Wallace is, you know, they're, they're, the troops are ready to leave this, the, the Scottish 
fighters are ready to just be like, we're out of here because the, the English army is too strong. And he gets out in front of them riding that horse and he gives that speech, right? The whole, I see a whole, you're right, the whole, I won't do it, um, right? They can take our land, but they can never take our freedom. And they get fired up. They get so fired up that they're willing to run into almost certain death. When Paul starts writing about being a soldier for the kingdom, I don't think he's talking about standing guard at the mall. You know what I'm saying? He's not talking about like a security position where we're like just trying to keep people at bay and just try and keep it like we've secured the space for ourselves and we just want to be comfortable and, and just want everything to be okay. I believe that the passion and the fervor that Paul is addressing here is the same in the same vein as it was, what, was it, what it was for William Wallace. That there would be a fire inside of us for the kingdom of God, then it would be evidenced in the way that we live our lives. That we would come to prayer and fasting, not with a, oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. I guess I'll skip a couple of meals so that, you know, because Pastor Barry asked. No, the fight that we fight is real. And that we need to be ready as the children of God to charge into battle at a moment's notice. Equipped with every bit of armor and technology and useful, uh, useful equipment that we can get our hands on to bring the fight to the enemy and push him back. And I think for far too long in the church, our focus has become how do we become more comfortable how do we settle into a way of life that's like, hey, I like my church the way I've got it. Don't you dare mess with it. I'm going to touch on some nerves today. But God's just kind of wrecking me over this. God has designed us as a place where, first of all, we would meet him, where we would worship him, where we would stand together in unity and community. And that there would be healing and salvation and transformation that would happen. But it doesn't stop their church. It, does, it can't stop there because if what God has done in your life is as awesome as I know it is, it should fire us up to be able to go out and see others come from darkness into light, from brokenness into wholeness, from death into life. And the battle that we fight is real. And so as we talk about the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, my prayer for you this morning is that there would be a fire that gets lit inside of you, that is fanned into flames, that becomes all-consuming in your life. You might not understand what that all, all of that means, and that's okay, but it's still my prayer for you, that we would be a church who are on fire for the things of the kingdom. So Paul says to the church in Ephesus, knowing that they are charging into a battle, he says this to them, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The enemy wants to take you out. He just wants to take you out. John 10.10 10 says that, that Satan comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That is his only purpose. He wants to take you out. And so Paul talks about the shield of faith. That needs to be present in our lives. And so this is the shield that he would have been referencing. It would have looked a lot like this. This was the Roman shield. It was about four feet tall and about two and a half feet wide. It was curved. And it was made out of layers of wood, which today we would call it plywood. Uh, they made it out of these layers, these strips of wood that were glued together. And then over the top of the front of it, they laid a thick layer of leather. And then they painted that leather. You can see it has color and lightning bolts and uh, wings and all kinds of cool stuff on it. Right in the middle is an embellishment called, anyone know what that's called? It's called the boss. That was a boss, where we get the term embossing, for those of you who craft, right? Or maybe you're in a leadership role in your organization or your work, right? And you're called the, the boss. You're one who actually stands out, you know, in front of the others. And so that's the boss 
uh, and tied to the back of that would have been the handle where the soldier would have grabbed a hold of that shield. The front of the shield is emblazoned with the identity of the empire. This is important for us to, to kind of ca catch a hold of because we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a minute. It was emblazoned. Every shield, it wasn't plain. It wasn't left brown. The Roman shield was emblazoned with the identity and the picture of the Roman Empire. It was curved so that it would provide extra protection for the soldier, and it was used in a number of different ways. I think the way we think about shields is kind of more the medieval kind of picture where you see the knight with the shield and they're in the fight with the, the sword and kind of blocking the, the blows. And, and the Roman soldier would have used the shield in that, in that kind of close quarters combat, um, but that wasn't its primary reason. The primary reason for the shield was to protect from arrows. See, what would happen, and you've seen this if you've watched any of those movies, those old-time old movies, or maybe, maybe the Lord of the Rings, is when the, when the army, the, uh, the attacking army was at a distance, that you would fire arrows into their company, into the, that group of soldiers, with the, the intent of taking them out, or at least maiming them, before they got close enough to be hand-on-hand -hand combat. And so those fires, they would have rows of archers who would just fire indiscriminately into the soldiers, into this group of, of men. They kind of got wise and realized that the, fire, the, the arrows alone were not uh, effective. And so they started dipping those arrows in pitch and wrapping different pieces of cloth around it. And they started lighting them on fire. And so they would shoot these flaming arrows into the advancing army. Now, remember, the, the, the shield is made out of what? Out of wood, right? Fire, wood, you get the idea. And so what would happen is that those, those uh, shields would catch fire, and the soldier would have to then drop the shield, leaving them exposed to the next volley of arrows or to the enemy's sword right in front of them. The Roman army, what they started doing in response to this is they started dipping or soaking their shields, and, and it's especially the purpose of the leather on the outside of the shield was to uh, extinguish the fire. So those shields, as they went into battle, were dripping wet, soaking wet, so that when they started advancing on the enemy, even the fiery arrows would hit the shields, and they could just pull them out and keep moving forward and it would not catch fire. You see how the picture starts developing and what Paul is saying? Because I've read Ephesians 6, I don't know how many times in my life, and you're like, oh yeah, the enemy has fiery arrows. It just sounds more scary, right? They're not just arrows, they're fiery arrows. But, but he's referenced, referencing something that would have been familiar in that time. And so the shield of faith in likening it to the Roman shield, he's saying that there is an ability of the shield to actually put out the fire, to actually extinguish the flames that the enemy would want to bring against us. Of course, if you've got that many shields in close, close proximity and one goes up in flames, guess what's going to happen? It's going to start spreading. It's going to start spreading from shield to shield to shield and uh, there's another great analogy in there we're going to talk about in just a second. So let's talk about faith for a second. Faith. We use the word a lot. We're, we're a people of faith. We're a faith community, right? The church is a, a religious organization that's centered on faith. And, and faith kind of gets thrown around in the world around us. It's, it's a word that's used extensively. But I think so often we miss and we forget what faith truly is in the life of the believer. Right off the bat, we, know, we have to know this, that faith is absolutely critical for you and for me. It's critical in the life of the believer. In fact, without faith, we cannot live a life for Christ. Without faith, we cannot be saved. We cannot come to Jesus apart from faith. Ephesians, right here in the book of Ephesians, Paul write this, writes this in chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been, faith, been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
by grace. What grace? God's grace. He is gracious to us. We're sinners. We're messed up. And he says, you know, I'm going to extend grace to you. And I'm going to give you the opportunity and the invitation to come and receive my son, to receive salvation. Our part in that is the faith component. That our response to his grace is that by faith, we would come to Jesus and receive him as our Lord and Savior, repenting of our sin and submitting our lives to his authority. It is our faith in God that allows us to stand. Without faith, it's not possible. Our lives as Christ followers would fall apart if it were not for faith. Just as a reminder, your faith is not this. Your faith is not your strength. Faith is not your intellect. Faith is not your will, and faith is not your experience, and each one of those can add to your faith and help increase your faith, but they are not the object of your faith. Your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is not in your faith. It's not that you have to somehow muster some more faith in your life. I've just got to have more faith. And I'm just going to work harder to have more faith. That's not what faith is. Your faith is not in your faith. The object of our faith is Christ alone. Our faith is in him alone. It must be in him alone. Faith is truly an act of submission and humility. Faith is letting go of the reins. Faith is saying, God, I can't but I know you can. God, I don't have it to give, but I know you do. God, I'm broken, but I know you can make me whole. God, I'm a sinner, but I know that you can forgive me. And God, I can't do anything for myself, but I know that you are enough, that you are sufficient, that you are my all in all. In Luke chapter 8, we read about the, the lady, the woman with the issue of blood who had for years, over a decade, have been struggling with a physical ailment that not only caused pain and weakness in her body, but also separated her from the community. That she was not able to live a normal, functional life in the world that she lived in. And so she hears that Jesus is coming and she pushes through the crowd and doesn't walk right up to him and say, Jesus, I know you can heal me. Would you heal me? No, she just simply reaches through, gets as close as she can, and touches the hem of his garment, and instantly she is made well. And, and Jesus, in that moment, says, who touched me? And his disciples go, Lord, there's a crowd. Are you kidding me? Look around you. There's all these people. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. And he goes, no, 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 no. Someone touched me, and I felt power go out from me. Who touched me? And this lady, knowing what had just happened in her body, steps forward at great risk and says, it was me. And Jesus makes this statement over her. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Do you think that all of a sudden... That there was this faith that raised up in her and it was just the faith that had healed her and that she just was lacking the faith the rest of the time? No, I think that for years she wanted to get better. In fact, it says in scripture that she spent all her money going to doctors. It says she suffered much at the hands of physicians. She had spent everything and she was desperate. It's not that her desire this day was greater than any other day. It was just the fact that Jesus came into the picture. That there was now someone who could do something for her that she could not do for herself. And for that matter, no one else could do for her either. And he becomes the object of her faith. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. If I could just reach out and experience his touch. And she's healed. Daughter, your faith has healed 
Her faith was not in her faith. Her faith was in Christ alone. Psalm 20 verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We have these chairs at our house. Um, if you've been to our home, you've, you've seen them. They're, they're from Ikea. They're a little bit older. And, uh, and s- most of them are in good shape, but there's a few of them that the glue has kind of let go a little bit. And so when you sit in it, there's kind of this lateral movement that happens. And, uh, and so every time we sit down to dinner, it's a bit of an act of faith in these chairs. I'm having faith. Now, you sat down in a chair today, and I've used this analogy before. Because um, people come to our house and they're like, oh, these are the faith chairs. I'm like, yes, they are. The, you didn't think twice about sitting in the chair you were sitting in today, did you? You didn't, you didn't get under it and inspect the legs. You didn't kind of like move it around and go, okay, is this chair going to hold me? Right? You can, just by observation, you can go, it's a metal frame chair. Right? It's sturdy. It's, you know, they're all uniform. They're lo- linked together. And you just plop down in the chair. These chairs at our house, not the same way. You kind of you sit down a little carefully, and you kind of determine first, are, are we good to go? Right? And I try to glue them, and some of them just, just there, there's no coming back. Um, so be warned. If you come to our house, be careful of the chairs. I can put my faith in this chair. I can have faith and trust that the chair will hold me because I can see that it's well made. Those wooden chairs in my house, not so much. And so I I have to walk with caution. When it comes to Jesus, what we know about him is that he is perfect. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the creator of all things. There is nothing broken. There is nothing missing. There's nothing strange about who he is. And so like this chair, I can come to Jesus and I can put my life in his hands And trust him with every aspect of who I am without having to worry about, is Jesus going to come through? Is he going to meet my need? Does he know that I'm here? Does he know what I'm walking through? We can put our absolute trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. What's the writer here in Psalm saying? Man, there's all kinds of stuff in the world that we can put our faith and our trust in. I can put my faith in my job. I can put my faith in an economy. I can put my faith, right, and fill in the blank in my possessions, in my house. I can put my faith in my spouse, right? The people around me and put my faith in them. Oh, that person, that person will never let me down. And we start putting our faith in our trust. We can put our faith in the government. What's it? The FDIC, right? Is that what it's called? The the, the banking oversight? I'm going to put my faith, right? In 2008, we're like, oh, maybe that faith was a bit misplaced. Because our faith cannot be in anything of this world. Our faith and our trust has to be in Jesus Christ. Remember I said that the shield was emblazoned with the image of the king, the, the mark of the empire. When Paul says that we carry the shield of faith, what he is saying in essence is, is on the outside of that shield is the identity of the kingdom of God which covers us and shields us from the arrows of this world, the things that the enemy wants to bring against us and saying, well, You know, God's going to let you down. He's not going to be there for you. You can't really trust him. The shield of faith blocks those arrows. And on the outside is the identity of the king, which reminds the enemy of who we belong to. That I belong to the king of kings. And you are a defeated foe. You're a defeated foe. That you cannot lay a finger on me because of who my faith and my trust is in. What's even cooler about this is the Roman army, would they figured out a way to take these shields and lock them together. And you might have seen this image before. It's called a, the tortoise. Um, there's a Latin word for it. We'll skip that. But this is called the tortoise, and you can see for obvious, obvious reasons why. 
they would come together and stand in this formation and they could advance on the enemy and the arrows that would come flying in would just be deflected off. And so they could kind of close that gap. Remember, they were most susceptible to the arrows when they were at a distance. And so this formation would allow them to get right up close where the arrows were no longer effective and then they could break rank and start advancing on the enemy. I love this picture because it reminds me of this. It reminds me of what the body of Christ is all about. When I think about the church, I see this. See, your shield of faith is important to you. But it's also important to the person sitting next to you and to the person next to them. That is, we bring our collective faith in Christ together. We take a stand and we lock those shields together. And there's a protection that is formed that the enemy cannot penetrate. He cannot penetrate. And I hear people talking about, well, do I really need to go to church? Yes. Your life depends on it. And, and, and that's not an exaggeration. Paul, I mean, the writer of Hebrews even addresses it and says, don't forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Even in the early church, people got busy. Oh, there's other things. I don't know. It's kind of rainy outside. Why is it important for us to come and be in relationship with each other? Because this becomes a catalytic environment where we can take our faith and lock it together. If you never know the people around you, how will you be able to lock shields with them? If you never walk in relationship and community, how can you stand with each other? God's called us to be the body of Christ, connected and joined to each other, to take the shields. In fact, here in the scripture, the, the, the word that's translated shield is the same word that's used for door. So it wasn't so much even just that it was a shield, but it was a barricade that prevented someone from coming in or something from coming in. See, the truth, church, is this, that we are under, under a constant barrage of indiscriminate fire by the enemy, especially through temptation. Here's the reality. The enemy doesn't know your thoughts. He can't read your mind. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. God does, but the enemy doesn't. And so what he has to do is from a distance just start hitting you with stuff. Just indiscriminately. And they're on fire. These, these arrows are on fire. And he just wants to try and find some place, somehow, somewhere to get something to stick. To start challenging our faith in Christ. So we do what? So we drop the shield and leave ourselves even more exposed. It is the tactic that he uses. In fact, that's why Paul even unpacks. He didn't say, hey, and take up the shield of faith and then move on. No, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is the way that he operates. And what he's looking for is a gap. He's looking for a space where he can get through. He just needs a little bit. He just needs a little place where he can move in and bring the hurt. Just a little place where that arrow gets stuck and I drop my shield. And it spirals out of control from there. He's just looking for what scripture calls a foothold. In fact, Paul writes this in Ephesians 4.27. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the, the devil a foothold because it's all he needs. You ever watch uh, any rock climbers in the house? Anyone? No? No rock climbers here today? All right. You ever watch rock climbers climb like this rock face that you're going, is that how? Right? It looks completely smooth. And they get like the chalk, they have a little chalk bag, and they, right? And they got the funky shoes. And then they kind of get up on the wall, right? Mission Impossible style. And all they need is like a crack in the granite. All they need is just this little ledge, right? Tracking with me? Are we good? Hello? All right. They're just that little ledge, and they can get their fingers on there, and they get their feet on that foothold, and they're able to scale up the side of a rock, rock face. I have a good friend of mine 
who, who loves to go to Yosemite and climb the front face of Half Dome. He, he posts these videos, like they camp halfway up and they like put, they have like these stretcher things that they, that are just kind of cantilevered from the, the rock face. There's nothing below you when you unroll your sleeping bag and they sleep on this little man-made, not even a ledge. Like he wakes up in the morning and he's like, and I'm getting vertigo watching the video. My like, guy's insane. The enemy's just looking for a foothold. Right? In our thinking, we go, what's this isn't that big of a deal. It's just a little, it's a little thing. That's all he needs, church. It's all he needs, it's all he's looking for. In the midst of, let's go back to the picture of the, the tortoise. In the context of the body of Christ, if we remove one of those shields, what happens? There's a weak spot. The whole thing becomes vulnerable. Can I just reemphasize the fact that you are an important part of this church? You're an important part of this church. That what you bring to bear in this place is important for the people around you. Now, you might not feel it, and we sang about that. That's why we sing these worship songs. doesn't matter what you feel. Because our trust is in him. In fact, that formation allows for someone who's injured to be moved towards the middle where they're protected by the others. And so we need to make sure that we form those ranks, that we stand together. Okay, that's the shield of faith. I want to close with the helmet of salvation. Of course, the helmet does what? Protects your head. What's in your head? Your brain. There's other things but the brain, and your brain's kind of important, right? If you didn't know that, you can leave today going, I just found out my brain's important, right? The brain is absolutely important when the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? We're just beginning to understand how the brain works. And it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Paul here is addressing the way we think. He's addressing the way we think. And how we think and the way that we think is so critical for us as believers. It's so critical for us as believers. I want to I say this though. His emphasis is not so much on intellect. It's not what you know. And that's important, but it's not what you know. What he's more concerned about is the way that you think. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we fight, or rather, they have divine power to demolish what? Strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is one of those verses when you read it, you're like, yeah, I have no idea what that means, or maybe a little bit. We've got to unpack this a little bit. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Where do you know stuff? In your brain. Your brain is wired with the capability to receive and, and comprehend and store information. And it's the acquiring of knowledge. It's why we go to school, right? It's why we teach our kids to talk, to do things like walk and ride a bicycle. And so our brains are important in that. So knowledge is, is, is contained in our mind. What Paul is saying here is that there are arguments and pretensions that will come against the knowledge of God, the things that we know about God. There are things that will stand opposed. Now, of course, there's going to be the stuff in the outside world, the world around us, that opposes our thinking. And we get that. But that's not going to be our focus as, uh, as we talk about the helmet of salvation. What I want to talk about is the way that we think and, and how we allow our minds to go places they don't need to go. See, Jesus saved us. You didn't save yourself. Jesus did the work. He did the work. Our thinking and the, and the way the enemy wants to suggest to us is that we had something to do, some part that we played. That our works, that I'm good, that I'm better than that guy, 
right? I'm nicer than that gal. And so somehow God must love me more because, you know, I'm more saved than they are. The helmet of salvation guards against that. It guards our thinking and allowing and protecting our minds to go places where our minds shouldn't go. Arguments and thoughts. And let's talk about the arguments. The word that in the Greek that's used here is logizimos or logizimai. And it's the word that's translated not just arguments, but it's also translated calculations and imaginations. In fact, Paul writes in other places and uh, in certain translations of the Bible uh, actually translate the word here, imaginations. We demolish imaginations that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. See, your thoughts exist in your mind, right? Are we on track? All right, your thoughts exist in your mind, and it's in your mind where you can calculate things, where you can figure stuff out. You can, you can think about, well, how am I going to tackle this problem, and, and how am I going to do this thing or that thing? We can look at, it, look at a situation, or, or, or you know, I'm a, I'm a fix-it guy. I love tinkering on stuff and trying to figure out how things work, and, and so in my mind, I'll imagine, okay, what could be wrong in this scenario? And so I'll make calculations in my mind and make decisions in my mind, it's kind of a figuring out. Imaginations, we get that because we talk about imagination with our kids, right? If you have an imaginary friend, what's, what do we know about that friend? They're not real. No matter what movies you've seen, right? Right? Inside out, like the, the yeah, it's not real. It's an imagination. It, it exists only in the mind. Get the imaginations from the word image or false image. The Bible talks in Deuteronomy about the Ten Commandments. God gives his people the Ten Commandments and he says, You shall not have any false images. You shall have not, nothing that is an imagination that is set up against who I am. So, idols. Here's the reality, church is our imaginations and our thoughts can begin to take the place of God in our lives, that we can start considering what's in our brain and what we're thinking about to be more important than what God says. And what in essence it does is it pushes our faith aside and says, God doesn't seem to be working on my behalf, so I'm going to figure this out on my own. I don't need him anymore. Now my faith has become my own thinking, my own ways. And Paul says, you can't go down this road. It's detrimental. It's absolutely detrimental. You see, our, our feelings and our emotions, our words and our actions are all a result of our thinking. Always. Right? This is never not the case. Whatever you do, whatever act, whatever word, whatever action, whatever, uh, whatever emotion it all starts with our thinking. It all, the, your brain, some, some synapse fires, and there's a chemical release, and things start happening in us physically that leads to action. It leads to words, right? It leads to more thinking, and it becomes kind of this vicious cycle in our lives. Always. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, when my imaginations take the place of God, I won't be able to discern his will anymore. Why? Because the things that I'm imagining and dreaming about take the front, the front, front stage, front and center, right? They're, they're the things that take up my peripheral vision. God's like, I can't communicate with you if all you're focused on is what's important to you, the imaginations of your own thinking. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How many of you have ever had a bad habit? <laughs> all right. I'm going to ask this again, and I'm going to just all raise your hand. Just everyone. How many of you have a bad habit? All right, because I don't want anyone to think that anyone in this church is perfect, because we're not. We're on our way, but we're not there yet. Then at some point, you've had a bad habit, right? Is it easy to break a bad habit? No, why? It's ingrained in your thinking. It becomes a pattern of living. 
a pattern of this world. God's saying, I want to change your thinking. I want to transform your thinking. I want to renew your mind. And what we're discovering in science is that the brain's ability to heal is beyond what we've ever, ever understood or comprehended or thought was reasonable or true. That the way that God has designed the brain is that given the right circumstances and, and, and the right effort and the right, right training, that the brain will start rewiring itself, that new synaptic pathways and neural pathways will be established, and that old things will start diminishing, and old ways of, start, of thinking will start falling away. God wants to renew our minds. So this vicious circle, what happens is, I, I think a certain thought, that's not centered on the Lord, and so I start feeling a certain way, and then that feeling leads me to behaving or acting out, which then leads me to thinking a certain way, which leads me to feeling a certain way, which leads me to, and you see, it just starts spiraling out of control in our lives. And we start thinking, oh, this is not, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, and we try harder. You know that, that in in, in any kind of addictive, uh, in any kind of addiction, and, and as they do counseling and addiction, you know what the least effective way of dealing with, with someone who's dealing with addiction is? Is saying to them, just stop. Just stop. Because you know what it actually does is it reinforces the cycle. It actually leads to the opposite of the di- desired effect, right? 1980s, just say no. Do you remember that? Just say no. If it were that easy, we, it wouldn't have been an issue. Same in our lives. Or just stop. Just stop. In the past couple of decades, our understanding of the effect of cognitive function on our bodies has become more understood. And, and here's the reality. We don't fully get it yet. Inside Out was a great movie. Scratch the surface, right? The more that we study, the more we discover, our brain does not separate what is real and what is imagined. If you imagine something, you imagine in your mind a scenario walking through something that your brain cannot separate the real thing from what's being imagined in a physiological sense. A great illustration of this is the Navy SEALs or elite forces like that. Before they go on a mission, what they do is they study the mission. They study where they're going to be, the neighborhood they're in. They get all of these photos and images of, of the targets and of the environment, and, and then they start role-playing. They actually will walk through it. They'll erect a, 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 a structure that will resemble what their mission is. But one of the most effective things they do is that they actually close their eyes And they imagine themselves going through the mission in their minds. And what it does for them is it gives them the same chemical responses in their body that they will feel in theater, in the action. The same cortisol, the same adrenaline, the same, all of those, right, all of the glands and all of the things that start being, uh, you know, come into play when they're actually in that moment are are mimicked or, or released when they're just role-playing in their minds. And so it prepares them, even physiologically and mentally, for what they're going to feel in that moment because we're wired with, right, the fright, flight, or fight instinct. That in a moment when we're back to where we're going to run away, we're going to freeze up or we're going to fight, which is built into our amygdala, into our, 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 the recesses of our brain. So even if our cognitive brain function stops, that that part of us can still fight. That's way more than you need to know. But it's just really fascinating because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're discovering that psychosomatic issues, problems that result physically because of thinking are off the charts. One survey of a thousand people, they found that over 80% who were exhibiting uh, 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 symptoms of an illness, that there actually was no illness. That it was all in their thinking, and their thinking led them to, to a place where they actually started exhibiting physical 
responses, part of that was, uh, and, and part of that study that Psychology Today did, or is written in Psychology Today, was that the cortisol that's released when you're in a distress situation, your body, you're always, there's always stress. There's good stress and bad stress. But when you're in distress, your body goes into a, a, a way of kind of preserving itself. And so it re- releases cortisol, which diminishes a lot of the function in your muscles. You lose blood flow to your extremities. Your, your, uh, your digestion slows down, which results in a tummy ache, right? And your body goes kind of into a limp mode. I'm just going to try and get you through. And so someone who's stressed about maybe, you know, an illness or they've, one of the, the big factors in this is WebMD. People are hopping online and self-diagnosing, right? And it gets worse, not because there's an actual physical symptom, symptom because our psychosomatic uh, issues, the, the, the brain is able to have an effect on the physical body. The, the, the opposite is true. They're finding that people heal a lot better when they're in an environment that's positive, when they're encouraged, when they're, you know, they're starting to bring animals into hospital rooms because just petting an animal will actually speed up recovery for someone who is sick. Our brain's ability to impact our physical being is beyond what we even understand. All right, so what does this all mean for us? What does this look like? Jesus says this, that there are images and imaginations that get set up in our mind that have to get pulled down. They have to get destroyed. And this is some of the way, this is not comprehensive, but this is some of the way that this works. It happens through fearful suggestions. You know, there's been an economy, a turndown in the economy and I know a couple of people at work have been laid off. I wonder if my job is safe. You know, if my job's not safe, I don't know how I would provide for my family. If, if I don't have an income and I don't have health insurance, oh my gosh, the health insurance. I, I wouldn't be able to take my kids to the doctor. And my kid needs braces. And what if I lose my job and I can't get another job? And I can't pay my mortgage and I lose my house. Oh my gosh, my family could end up homeless. And it goes out of control. And we lose the grip on what reality is. Could any of those things happen? Sure. Does it for the most part? No. But we become gripped with fear. And we start focusing on those issues in our life that bring fear. And we forget that God is not a God of fear. That our faith is not in our work. Our faith is not in our, the economy. Our faith is in Jesus Christ alone. Second Timothy 1.7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. That the way you think would be brought under the authority of God, that you would not allow your imaginations to run away with you and stand opposed to God's authority comes in the form of personal propositions, things that we, we, do, we do this. If I could just do this, if I could just get more education, if I could just have 50 more dollars, if I could just be in a different neighborhood, if I could just go to that school, then, then I'll be able to get that job or I'll be able to meet that person or I'll be able to have breakthrough in this part of my life. And we start talking or kind of pump ourselves up into something that's not real. And it takes emotional and physical energy spending and obsessing on those things. The way it works in my life, and this is what God has been dealing with me in in the last two weeks especially, is this. I have conversations with people in my mind all the time. Especially people where there's opposition or I don't think they don't like me or, right? And so I start having a fake conversation. Well, I'm going to confront that person. And then if they say this, and my response will be this, but then I know they'll probably say this, and then I'm going to zing them with this one. And you know, my brain doesn't know the difference between me having a real conversation and a fake conversation. And so my adrenaline starts increasing. And I start, like, I start sweating. I start getting frustrated and my muscles tense up. Why? Because my brain doesn't know the difference. Is it real? 
What's especially frustrating is when you meet with that person and they come up and go, before you say anything, I just need to apologize. I was wrong. And I'm like, come on. I was going to get you good. Is that the heart of God? Did God want to get you good? No. He wanted to extend grace to you. Do you see how that just goes out of control? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares who? The Lord, not you. Gets better. Plans to prosper you. Anyone want to prosper? And not to harm you. Anyone want to be free from harm? Plans to give you hope in the future. Anyone want to hope in the future? By the way, you were made to thrive. Declares the Lord. Not my own thinking. Medical preclusions is another one. I'm going to tell you, and don't send me nasty emails. <laughs> I love modern medicine. And I believe that God is wired and, and, and uh, connected people with, with science. And he's, I mean, he's created everything. He's given people the ability to understand and, and diagnose and treat and Oh my goodness, I, I've been on the receiving end of modern medicine and I'm thankful. But too often, church, we allow our thinking and in our words to make declarations of our bodies that are not in alignment with God. We hear a diagnosis even before there's a prognosis. And our minds run wild. Our minds spiral out of control. Paul says, bring every thought captive. And you see, the problem is your thinking affects your behavior and it affects what you say. And so often I hear people say on the receiving end of bad news, oh, this is terrible. Oh, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to survive this. Oh, I, 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 I don't know what I would do. And we start making declarations with our mouths. Now, remember this. I'm going to tie this back to something. The enemy doesn't know what you think until you say it out loud. And when you say it out loud, if it's not aligned and under the authority of Christ, you've given him a foothold. Ha-ha, you're afraid of dying. You're afraid of cancer. You're afraid of not having your spouse. You're afraid of, and he starts running wild with it. Because now the indiscriminate arrows become targeted missiles. And I'm just going to keep pounding you in the place where the fear is. Now, I'm not saying don't be real. Or just fake it till you make it. This is not what I'm talking about. But it's where we rally together as the body of Christ. And we allow our faith to stand together. And we make declarations of healing. That he died not only so that I would be saved. That Jesus died so that I could have physical healing in my body. And we start speaking the declarations of God over our lives. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When you come to Jesus and you surrender your life to him, you put your faith in him and you're saved by grace, it's not just your eternal being that's saved, it's the physical being as well. And that your body is under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. The other place this happens a lot, church, is in prayer. Father God, I'm just going to stand, I'm going to pray and agree with my brother in this. And the enemy starts going, who are you to pray that way? Who do you think you are? Because I know what you did yesterday. I know the attitude you had. I know that you blew up at your wife and got angry with her. I know that you cheated a little bit on that form or you lied, a little white lie to get yourself out of trouble. Who do you think you are to pray? And we entertain that thought and go, oh, yeah, that's true. No, it's not. Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And that the covering of God in our lives is greater than even your mistakes. Now, we don't want to live, as Paul says, in a way that we just keep going on sinning because God's grace. No, that's, 
The goal of our lives is to be conformed to the image of Christ, but we have to align our thinking in such a way that when the enemy opposes us in prayer, that we stand our ground. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about the Word of God. I want to conclude with two verses. Romans 8, chapter, six, uh, chapter 8, verse 6 says this, The mind governed by the, the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. In Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Could we stand together? So often I encounter people, believers, who want to live differently. Pastor, I, I want my life, I want things to be different in my life. I, I want things to be different in my marriage. I want things to be different in my work. Can I tell you this morning that in order for those things to happen in the physical, they have to happen in your mind first. You have to come before the Lord by faith, carrying that shield of faith, resisting the arrows and, and deflecting the arrows of, arrows of the evil one. And we have to bring our minds under submission. And here's the thing, church. I can observe your behavior. And it'll give me clues about what's going on in your mind. We can have the worship team come forward. But I can't see your thinking. And to a certain degree, the, the signs and the results and the evidence of destructive thinking are, they, they can be evident, but they can also be hidden. We have to bring our minds under the authority of Christ. We have to bring our thinking and align it with Him. To honor Him, to, to, to glorify His name, to see His will and His purpose carried out in our lives. It's not a negotiable. It's a must, an absolute must for us. So Father, this morning, I ask that you would give us the mind of Christ that you would equip us with the helmet of salvation, that our thinking would be covered by your Son. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform our minds, Lord, where our, the pattern of our thinking has gotten off. God, that you would restore, that you would heal, you would transform. God, I pray that we would stand firm with the, helm, with a, with a, with a shield of faith in place. Lord, that we would be diligent in not giving the enemy a foothold. That we would not be careless with our words. That we would not be careless with our actions. But that we would bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with worship. The prayer team will be available at the back if you want to pray. Uh, let's worship together. You will always be more than enough for me. You will always be more than enough for me. You will always be. You will always be more than enough for me. You will always be more than enough for me. Nothing's gonna stop. Nothing's gonna stop. Nothing's gonna
for your word, Lord, that we can stand in it, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. So good to worship with you guys today. Feel free to stick around. Say hi to someone you haven't met yet. Give someone a hug as we're tearing down our chairs. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you. Yeah.